Hello everyone. It's a glorious Sunday morning here in the North Country. Welcome to Dead to Rights, the podcast. I'm your host, Donna Carrick. We've got a fantastic show on the agenda for today. Our guest will be Iris Weichler, author of the self-help book, Role Reversal. For our Readers on the Run segment, we'll bring you A Taste of Justice from 13 by the Maydams of Mayhem, a story by Jane Peterson Burfield titled Triskaidekaphobia. And if you can say that three times fast, you're a better man than I am. If you're not familiar with Jane's work, she's a regular contributor to the Maydams and other Canadian anthologies, is well-known in Canadian crime circles, and her story, There Be Dragons, was a finalist for the 2018 Arthur Ellis Award for Best Short Story. Coming up on July 15, we're pleased to introduce you to Perry Block, the very funny author of Nouveau Old, formerly Cute. And our story that day will be The Size of the Skip by Alec Carrick. Young adult adventure author Jane Barnard of the Maddie Hatter series will join us on July 22nd, and I'll read her story from World Enough and Crime titled Easter Aches, Carrick Publishing 2014. We'll round out the month on July 29th with our episode 31, welcoming Jen Knox, author of The The Glass City and After the Gazebo. And she'll speak with us about her breathtakingly beautiful literary work. As I scribble my notes for today's episode, I'm glued to the news out of Thailand. My heart is racing with each new glimmer of hope. Four boys have been freed so far from the cave, and I'm praying that by the time you hear this podcast, every single boy and their young coach, as well as all brave rescue workers, will be safe and sound and warm and fed. This story has gripped me all week long. As the mother of three children, two of whom have at various times worked responsibly with children in a summer camp capacity, my heart goes out for that 25-year-old coach. His fear must be overwhelming, his hope that he not lose any of the children in his charge, and yet he has to struggle to keep a brave face for the youngsters. We know very little right now, but I have my fingers and toes crossed. One rescue worker has already lost his life. I pray there will be no more loss and that this old world will be treated to a badly needed good news story. It's been a week full of calls for the reunification of children with their parents. As a parent, I find this topic cuts very close to the surface. I can't imagine the horror currently being faced by the immigrant children and parents who are being held in separate facilities even as I speak. This situation is custom-built to make the average person feel helpless, like there is nothing that can be done, and for many of the families pleading to be reunified, there may indeed be no hope. In an ocean of outrage, this is one tsunami. It threatens to drown our sense of civil right and wrong, our belief in liberty and the respect of family units. Worse, it drags us all into its sheer ugliness creating a feeling of conspiracy or collaboration among ordinary people who feel powerless to right this enormous wrong and who therefore feel, in some terrible way, complicit. Only time will tell where this wave of autocracy will lead, what sandbar it will fling our floundering democracy onto, but one thing is certain, we must speak out, clearly and with truth of spirit. When we see a great wrong, we must not struggle to justify it or submerge our voices in feelings of helplessness. These are pivotal times, and pivotal times call for truth, honesty, and the courage to stand where we live. On a lighter note, as you know, I've been reading The Outsider by Stephen King, and I had promised to bring you my thoughts. Confession time. There will be no spoilers today. I have not yet finished the book. I haven't reached the exciting reveal. But I'm far enough into it to say that Mr. King does not ever disappoint. A horrific murder, a compelling case of duality, and King's relentless page-by-page drive may well make this the crime novel of the year. 
I'm tempted to skip to the end just to discover how he'll work his way out of this mess. Tempted, but that's something I never do. I hate the disruption of art. I like to witness a book in the intended flow, the way the writer laid the story out for us. I'm not someone who can skip from page to page and back again. So I know what I'll be reading this week at bedtime, and hopefully I'll have it finished by next week. With summer well underway and vacation time looming on the horizon, why not take a trip to our North Country? Have you ever considered a trip across Canada? This is sure the time of year for it, with this wide, vast country luxuriating in a state of greenery. We'd love to share our beautiful country with you. Whether you have a specific Canadian destination in mind or are just longing for a coast-to-coast train or car trip, gather up the family and firm up those travel plans. And while you're booking that flight, don't forget to pick up your copy of Colors of Canada by well-known Canadian author and OISE instructor Joan O'Callaghan, Carrick Publishing, 2016. Packed with vital hotspot info and loaded with exceptional illustrations by artist Jane Coriel, let Colors of Canada be your guide across this great nation. And when you're not busy studying your next destination, pass Colors of Canada into the back seat with a box of crayons and let the kids go wild, bringing those illustrations to vivid life. Our show notes today will feature a link to Colors of Canada by Joan O'Callaghan, Grab your copy and help us celebrate Canada's official birthday, keeping in mind we've been here for much longer than a mere 150 years. And now I'm delighted to bring you a brilliant crime story by one of Canadian crime's own stars, Jane Peterson Burfield, and here is Triskaidekaphobia. Triskaidekaphobia by Jane Peterson Burfield. Four, no Trump. Are you sure, Annie, asked her partner nervously. June was still floundering through the higher demands of Bridge. She had been recruited as a temporary replacement at Friday Bridge while Jenny was away. Four, no, Annie said again, and you know what to do, June. At the table on June's left, Margie grinned at her partner, Edna. With few points between them, they knew the other team could make almost any bridge contract if they concentrated on their play. Maybe they could be distracted by talk. Have you heard the latest about Jenny, June? You know, Jenny who usually plays bridge with us. The one who had the miserable husband and the mother-in-law from hell. Edna winked at Margie, but June and Annie were too involved in counting the tricks in their hands to notice. And so, after a final contract of six no Trump was declared, Margie began her story while they played. The last time Jenny wore black was at her husband's funeral, and then she only wore black because it was expected of a new widow. In her heart, she told me, she was wearing a rainbow of ice cream shades, colors that reflected her stepping into a garden of new hope, new feeling, new thought. Jenny said she felt free for the first time in more than 20 years. Mort, or Morley to his mother, met Jenny at York when it was a new university in the north end of Toronto. It was a second-choice university for most students, but a school where flexible degree choices also attracted adventuresome undergrads and professors. They met in a course only masochists would take, Milton, Shakespeare, and Blake as political vessels of their times. Mort liked the reference to vessels. It made him think of beer. Jenny took this behemoth of a course as an academic challenge. They were both part of the few who passed in spite of the best efforts of their prof, who was trying to establish his academic reputation by failing as many students as possible. Jenny wore a blue dress and shoes to the first seminar. With her bright red hair, she was a standout. Mort, used to the conservative shades of his home, thought Jenny was exotic and fun and decided he wanted to get to know her. Jenny was finally out of the gray school uniform she had worn for more than ten years, and she loved color.
Mort stalked her, always managing to be outside the lecture hall when she was leaving class. Oblivious to his attention, Jenny was polite. It was a very long courtship before he proposed. Jenny wanted a wedding not full of poofy dresses and even grander pretensions, but one that led to a solid married life. Mort wanted a wedding and reception with enough flair to be memorable to his parents and their friends. When they married in Jenny's United Church, Jenny left out the obey part of love, honor, and. Surely, Mort's mother was not pleased. And when Mort said his vows, he winked when he promised love and fidelity. At the time, Jenny thought it was just cute. Thus they began their slow journey into married mediocrity. They had the required two children, a girl and a boy, the so-called millionaire's family. Mort bought life and mortgage insurance so his family would be secure. Their house, a four-bed center hall decorated in discreet beige, was approved for both its layout and location. Jenny had wanted to settle in the beach area of Toronto, but that location was judged as too bohemian. And too far from Mort's new job in a consulting business. So a small house in Lawrence Park it was. Jenny wanted to use her fine arts degree when she worked. She enjoyed exploring new art ideas and teaching children, and she'd developed a good eye for color and composition in her undergrad courses. Color made her feel happy. Mort and his mom thought she should stay at home, initially to decorate the house and make connections with other young marrieds at the country club, and then to take care of the kids. A few years later, when Jenny pointed out that the kids were now old enough to be at school all day, Mort told her he expected her to keep a clean house, have a good meal on the table, and be prepared to entertain clients and friends on short notice. So Jenny sank further into a dark space, quite foreign to her adventuresome self. She felt bound, like Gulliver, in a soulless place. Jenny rarely noticed any more when Mort flirted with the young waitresses at the club. She thought that, like much else about Mort, it was all bluster. She knew he was becoming one of those men she had disliked so much, one who flirted constantly and had hands that strayed where they shouldn't. She didn't understand why he was changing. They had a good, lovely home, two great kids, and he had a good job. But Mort did not seem satisfied with his life. Jenny decided to try to add some color to her own life by painting in her basement studio at the far end of the laundry room. But it's hard to be creative under neon tube lights. Mort objected to the smell of turpentine. Jenny took up watercolors. And then one day at Sally's school, she was asked to help plan a reception for visiting students from Japan. The principal wanted to showcase Toronto and Canada in a mural to be designed and painted by the students. Jenny got out her pencil and pad and set off to meet the chosen two artists from each classroom, the kids who needed a boost in self-esteem. With some lively discussion, they created a drawing with Maple Leafs, the Maple Leaf hockey team, and the CN Tower at its core. The feat of guiding the kids and choosing images to represent life in the city was fulfilling. Jenny was late getting home that evening, late in preparing the meal and creating the candlelit ambiance Mort wanted when he hosted dinner for business clients. He was not pleased. He drank a little too much and flirted with the client's girlfriend. The contract was never signed. Jenny returned to the school the next day, refreshed and eager to gather and sort more ideas for the border of the mural. The students sent to participate became more enthusiastic, and her small project became mainstream at the school. And as Jenny worked with these slightly marginalized kids on their images, she felt alive. Life was so much more pleasant when Mort wasn't imposing his needs all the time. In one small matter of her home life, Jenny had won an argument. 
Mort insisted he wanted no animals in the house, as they were dirty, triggered allergies, and took too much time and money to care for. Jenny tried to talk it over, suggesting the kids would benefit from the responsibility and from the love. Mort was adamant. But when he came back from a business trip a few weeks later, a small black kitten greeted him with a hiss and a flurry of attacking claws. Mort threatened to drown it, but Jenny and the kids hid it until Mort got so involved in his current deal he forgot about the new pet. So Trisky became a small wedge of affection and fun for Jenny and the kids and a constant annoyance for Mort, who even hated the cat's name. He thought the name too cute. Trisky was more than just an annoyance to Mort. He was a black cat, one of the more unlucky icons to a superstitious man. Mort rarely mentioned his superstitions to outsiders, but his family knew about his illogical dislike of black animals, broken mirrors, and anything to do with the number 13. Mort's business became more successful. He decided they needed a bigger home, with an extra bedroom for his mother. House hunting was a disaster. Something was always wrong with the layout, or the landscaping, or the condition of the shutters. In reality, Jenny realized, the houses broke his unwritten rules of superstition. When they viewed the last house, Jenny caught Mort counting the stairs. When he announced twelve for the number of steps down the main staircase, Jenny felt relief. The house was perfect. She never pointed out to Mort that the step up into their master's suite off the mid-landing made thirteen stairs. He never would have bought the house, and she liked it. Mort may have inherited his superstitions from his mother, who was as ridiculously afraid of black cats as she was attached to knocking on wood and carrying a rabbit's foot. When Trisky grabbed her rabbit foot key ring and began carrying it around the house, Shirley refused to go out as she knew bad luck would stalk her. It took two days to get her out of her bedroom. Jenny viewed that time as a mini-vacation. The kids loved the cat's antics, and they needed some fun at home. Sally, the elder, was beginning her final year of high school, a year full of impossible demands from her teachers and from her guidance counselor. Home life was not pleasant. She spent as much time as possible at her friend's house to avoid her father's and grandmother's bickering. Shirley and Mort battled about Jenny's inadequacies, about the deficiencies in their lifestyle, and about the cat. Mike, in grade nine, was insecure in his new high school life and was, Jenny suspected, being bullied. He retreated into social media and online battle games to vent his frustration. Neither of them needed Mort to berate them for a lack of accomplishment or a lack of social graces or appearance. Jenny could do little to stop Mort as he bullied her the same way, but she would try to make her kids feel better. And she did feel better until Mike asked her why she stayed with Mort. Fear, she thought. Fear about finances. But she didn't answer him. As the atmosphere in the house thickened with dislike and growing frustration, Jenny decided she had to do something. Something. But what? The next week, Mort announced he was moving his office to Huntsville. He said he had wasted enough time in the city and needed the change and new challenge up north. He said he could do his work online. Jenny thought Mort might be using the move as an excuse to get rid of a bothersome assistant who had become a little too close. Mort had not even asked her what she thought, Jenny noted, although he had obviously discussed it with his dear mamma. Jenny liked going to Muskoka in the summer for several weeks, but to live there year-round would be difficult, especially if she went back to university. The commute up and down would be horrendous in winter, and with the kids settled into schools in Toronto, moving up north midway through the year would be disruptive. Could we delay the move, Mort? Jenny asked. I'd like a chance to get our lives organized down here. The kids need to finish school. Mort sat back, sipping his drink. 
Sally's off to university in the fall, and Mike can go to the high school up there. We need a change. We can join the Muskoka Club, which is much less expensive than the Granite. And Mother really wants to go back there. That's where she grew up, you remember. Jenny paused, thinking carefully how to phrase her request. I'd like to finish my art project at the school and to get the house ready for sale. I also want to complete my master's before we leave the city. And it would only take a year or so. What's the hurry? Mort barely looked in her direction as he flipped the channels on the television remote. Mother wants to go now, and I'm fed up with my partners here. They want to buy me out, but not for as much as I'd like, so we can't afford to live here. Besides, think of the golf and the fishing. I can hardly wait, Jenny thought. She wondered what he had done to upset his partners enough to boot him out. Was the assistant threatening blackmail about their affair? Jenny didn't really care if Mort fooled around. She had long ago given up hope for a loving relationship. But she was furious that his lack of control was probably the main reason she'd be uprooted from her own friendships and connections. Jenny loathed club life, golf, and fishing in more or less that order. She needed to think. The Ladies' League Friday Bridge gave her relief. While playing cards each week, she could discuss her life. The ladies were discreet, as they all knew each other's secrets. Jenny especially enjoyed dressing up and conversing in an old-world environment. One Friday, after a particularly draining week at home, she decided to go shopping after bridge with her friends. When a fetching pair of red Christian Lobotan shoes, ones with impossibly long pointed toes, appeared on sale, Jenny bought them in spite of their ridiculous price as a small rebellion against Mort's sudden economy. Mort liked her to dress conservatively. She knew he would hate the red shoes, but she no longer cared. Jenny wore her red shoes for the client dinner the next week. Mort groused, but after seeing the client's wife chatting with Jenny about her shoes, he held fire. But Mort was not happy, for he had been trumped. Jenny kept the shoes. Early in May, during a week when Mort was particularly cranky, Trisky played on the stairs and sang to her catnip mouse the way a feral cat sings to its prey before killing it. Mort sat up in bed, woke Jenny, and told her to silence that animal, or he would, once and for all. Jenny called to the little furball. Trisky shot through their bedroom door, belled catnip mouse in her mouth, and leapt onto their bed. Mort kicked out, but Trisky was too quick. She jumped to Jenny's side of the bed where she settled contentedly. Trisky had developed the trick of always getting on Mort's nerves and under his feet, but dancing out of reach quickly. She had grown into a beautiful young cat with long black fur and a plume of a tail. Mort always looked at her suspiciously. Black cats were one of his greatest fears. Mort got up for one of his now-frequent trips to the bathroom, relying on his fabled night vision and not putting on the light. When he came out of the bathroom and headed back to bed, Trisky decided to dash past, twisting around Mort's feet. In quiet fury, Mort kicked out and sent Trisky flying. He swore he was taking the cat to be put down the next morning. Jenny had put up with Mort's demands for years, but she wasn't ready to be uprooted from her friends and leave her family. And she was not going to let her little furball be put down for being an inconvenience. She had to act. What about Jenny's family? asked June as she put down her cards. We never heard much about Jenny's family. I know her dad died when she was quite young. Her mother was a herbalist and an aromatherapist. A bit strange. Jenny's sister helped her mother in the candle and specialty shop they owned. Jenny wanted to do something different and ended up with the ineffable Mort. I think she should have stuck with herbs and candles. The ladies gathered up the cards after June and Annie went down two tricks. As Edna shuffled, Margie continued the story while she dealt. 
Next day, Jenny dressed for Friday bridge and put on her navy suit and pearls. Then she got out the red Lobotin shoes, the ones Mort hated, and added a red scarf. Downstairs, Mort and Shirley told her she looked ridiculous, but Jenny ignored them. She knew how she felt, and she was so fed up with their criticism that she wanted to do just the opposite. As she went upstairs to get her handbag, Trisky followed, full of frolic. Mort came up the stairs counting as he always did. One, two, three, up to twelve. At the top of the stairs, he went to step up into the bedroom, the thirteenth step, when Trisky sprang out at him, flicking his trousers with her claws. Jenny was standing beside the doorway. As Mort tried to turn, he tripped over her extended foot, fell backwards off the bedroom step, and catapulted down the stairs into his mother, who was just coming up. The paramedics said he broke his neck at the bottom, and his mother hit her head against the wall. There was nothing they could do for either of them. The police questioned Jenny. They had been told by Mort's aunt that the marriage was not happy. But Jenny's version of what happened was consistent with the evidence, and so the deaths were deemed accidental. Jenny told me that she always liked a two-for-one deal, and the scuff mark on her special red shoes could be covered up with polish. She's been much happier the last few months. The insurance paid off Mort's debts and the mortgage. His partners were forced to buy out his portion of the business, and there was enough left to get the kids through college and give her a modest income. Perhaps even enough money for a new catnip mouse for Trisky and a new pair of Lobotins for Jenny. The cat has a peculiar name, Margie, June said. Is Trisky a combination of Frisky and Tricky? Oh, no, Margie said. It's short for Triskaidekaphobia the fear of thirteen. Mort had a lot of superstitions, but he always said thirteen would do him in. Thank you for listening to Triskaidekaphobia by Jane Peterson Burfield. I'm going to tell you a little bit about my friend Jane. Killing someone softly with words is greatly appealing to a North Toronto matron like Jane. After raising three wonderful daughters in a fourth-generation family home, she is ready for more adventure. Finding a way to use fashion, vegetables, and small animals in her stories to bring about justice, albeit rough justice, is her challenge. To her utter amazement, Jane won the Boney Pete Short Story Award in 2001 for Slow Death and Taxes, the first short story she wrote. After several more years of success with the Bloody Word Story Contest, she decided writing was a misery-making but delightful challenge. She has had short stories published in Blood on the Holly and Bloody Words, the anthology, as well as all three 13 anthologies by the Maydams of Mayhem to date, including her story titled There Be Dragons in 13 Claws, 2017, Carrick Publishing by the Maydams of Mayhem. And There Be Dragons was nominated for the 2018 Arthur Ellis Best Short Story Award. So that's quite a huge prestigious honor for Jane. She's proud to be a member of the Maydams of Mayhem and she looks forward to the creative buzz that comes from an association of women writers. She hopes you enjoy her story about a woman creating her own justice. And that's a little bit about Jane Peterson Burfield, and you can find her at the Maydams of Mayhem website. And now, please give a big Dead to Rights welcome to today's author, Iris Weichler. Iris has been a well-known patient advocate and licensed clinical social worker for the past 40 years. She began her career working with geriatric patients who experienced catastrophic illness and counseled them and their families about adapting to these medical problems. She helped them understand their medical condition and counseled them about how to cope with the disease and its impact on their lives. 
She continued to work on a rehabilitation unit in a large Chicago teaching hospital with patients who had suffered traumatic brain injuries, strokes, cancer, amputation, burns, and neurological diseases like multiple sclerosis and Parkinson's disease. Ms. Weichler also covered the emergency room for 13 years, seeing patients of all ages with a variety of medical problems. In addition, she worked with kids who had been victims of child abuse. So Iris is well positioned to speak to us on the subject of caregiving via her book, Role Reversal, Taking Care of Yourself and Your Aging Partner. Good morning, Iris, and welcome to Dead to Rights. How are you today? I'm good, thank you. Right on time. Yes, right on time. Exactly. (laughs) We had planned the interview, and hey, here I was. Yep. Um, (laughs) For those who don't know, Iris, now let me pronounce your last name, and hopefully I'll do it correctly. Is it Wakeler? It's like Bike, Wakeler. Weichler, thank you. Iris Weichler is the author of Role Reversal, How to Take Care of Yourself and Your Aging Parents, as well as um, writing the Infertility Roller Coaster, A Guide to Educate and Inspire. Is that right? That's correct. Good, good. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about uh, what led you to these books, and I I believe that you've um, spent some time working as a clinical social worker and a patient advocate, is that right? That's right, 40 years of my time. <laughs> 40 years. <laughs> that yeah, is a, that's been a long time. That's a bit of time. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about your work as a clinical social worker and how it um, it led you to this kind of thinking that, that, that resulted in these books? Yeah, um, I, I'm a medical social worker, and um, I spent many years working in hospitals, um, primary bulk of my career was working with uh, physical medicine and rehab patients, so there were people with uh, life-changing illnesses, head injuries, uh, burns, strokes, amputations. Um, So I I really um, am interested in uh, medical conditions that that are life-altering for both the person that experiences it and their family members as well. And so I would do the counseling with my patients as well as their families to help them not necessarily accept what happened, but to adapt. And I found that infertility was the same, the same kind of thing. I personally experienced infertility. And then um, I, I made a promise that if, after my treatment, if I was successful, I would uh, write and counsel people that had been through it, too. I, I really feel it's important to have that blend of personal experience and professional expertise it makes in my opinion makes you most effective in working with other people and and your outcome Um, was successful yes i was successful i have a a lovely daughter who's now 17 years old excellent congratulations um now what year did uh riding the infertility roller coaster come out that came out in 2006 and actually, I wrote another book before then uh, when I was working at the hospital. My first book, which was in 1988, was called Patient Power, How to Have a Say During Your Hospital Stay. And that evolved from um, watching a family I was working with. I was walking by a patient's room, and the family was outside the patient's room crying and sobbing. And I looked inside, and the resident was just doing a, a, an ordinary EKG test. And I said to them, what's wrong? And they thought he was dying, oh. and, and it didn't. It didn't even occur to them to, to ask the resident what he was doing, and it also didn't occur to the resident to explain what he was doing. And mm. I saw a number of times where uh, that sort of thing happened, where if people knew the right question to ask, mm-hmm. it would have saved a whole lot of anxiety and panic. So I decided to write a book for people to help them kind of understand how to negotiate their way through through a hospital situation. Um, I'm really interested in people and how they respond to crises, and I'm a really big believer that if you have the right information, that makes a huge difference, and it also helps to know that you're not alone. I agree with and you. So that's you, really... 
Yeah, it's such a common problem. I think any listeners can actually relate or have a story of their own. It's not necessarily misinformation. I mean, I found here in Toronto that the um, medical professionals are really professional, and it's not a case of misinformation, but it's often a case of no information. Um, When I was very young and pregnant with my first uh, child, I was about five months pregnant, and I contracted bronchitis, and the bronchitis was so bad, and if you're familiar with that one, it it hurts. It physically hurts. And here I was, a, a short woman. I was really small and quite pregnant and coughing my guts out, literally. So I thought, this is ridiculous. It's the middle of winter. I better get down to emerge and see if there's anything they can do for me because this, I, I, I felt I was at risk for miscarrying, you know. So I, I waited my time in emerge, which I didn't mind because I knew I wasn't at risk of death, you know, and there are people who have greater needs. But as I was waiting there, it got quite late, and I hadn't I hadn't eaten or anything since about noon. Um, I think we're talking about two in the morning, and I started to drift off. And all of a sudden, a doctor came racing in and said to an orderly, "Get her up to the maternity ward right away." Or, or I don't know if it was the maternity ward or it was the uh, delivery ward. I think it was the delivery ward, and uh, it freaked me out completely because I thought they were implicating that I was about to go into childbirth but it was just that there were no beds anywhere else you know <laughs> oh my gosh i thought they were going to and, do- and your system the healthcare system is a lot better than ours <laughs> oh it's wonderful it really is i'll never talk it down yeah yeah, yeah. with all the different experiences that's, that's, we go yeah, through in life that's a perfect example of what yeah. i'm talking about you, it, it, people would just think about the implication and you're in such a vulnerable state when you're sick anyway and, yes and uh, it's just it's just so hard yeah yeah and I mean, that's just a silly little thing. Of course, I was at no risk. There are people who are at really serious medical risk and and having to add the anxiety to that. Um, getting back to the uh, taking care of yourself and your aging parents, I guess we've called ourselves the sandwich generation, haven't we? Because we're the people we who care for our children and our parents. About 45 million of us here in the U.S. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and it's a big stressor. Now... I lost my parents um, in my mother in 2000 and my father in 2006, and both were in need of quite a bit of care before they passed. And my husband had lost his mother when he was quite young, but he lost his father in 2001. So we've definitely been there. And uh, what co- what are a few of the things that you cover off in your book um, without giving too much away from the book? professional perspective um, I lost my mom 30 years ago and um, I was a primary caregiver for my dad and he died in 2014 so uh, originally when I wrote the book I was writing a memoir about my dad because I, I just think he's a very extraordinary person and then during the course of my writing it all these people started telling me their caregiving stories, and I also came across a lot of people, obviously, with my work, and so I decided to blend the two, so it's sort of an unusual hybrid I used, and also the thing about my book that's unique is my father wrote uh, his autobiography, and so I incorporate his words in the book as well, so mm-hmm. as he's telling his story, I use that as a jumping point, point. Um, and I cover what I believe were the most universal caregiver issue. So it's everything from, um, as a caregiver, experiencing the grief and the emotions that goes along with it. Mm -hmm. Um, How do you assess someone to determine what kind of help they need? How do you start the caregiver conversation? Mm -hmm. Um, What does a caregiver need to be effective? I look at the legal documents that are needed. Um, I look at um, when is the time to consider transitioning to additional care. So mm-hmm. I interviewed uh, the head nurse of an assisted living program. I offer information about looking for nursing homes. I talk about building a support network. Um, I talk about planning a funeral. Mm-hmm. Um, I talk about um what do you do if, if the people that are supposed to be helping as a caregiver team fall off? I uh, also have a chapter um, about resources. Where, where do you find help? What questions do you ask them? Um, mm-hmm. I look at um, understanding and coping with memory loss. I look 
look at being a, um, a, a caretaker, a long-distance caretaker. Mm-hmm. Uh, I look at cope, coping with, with losing someone because of a terminal illness. So I really try to, I took all the caregiving issues that I saw in working with my patients and then also in terms of my personal experience. Another huge one that I talk about is how to manage hospital and insurance bills and which is a really That's a big practical one, one, isn't it? Because people have a tough yeah. time in the U.S. Yeah. with that. Yeah. So, so, yeah. so it's a nice blend of that. And, and, and as I wrote the book, the other piece that was really interesting to me that I didn't realize was um, my dad had modeled caregiving his entire life. And I honestly didn't realize that until I wrote, you know, I wrote the book and I read what he had written. Um, and, and that was a huge revelation for me. As I was writing the book, and he knew I was writing it, and we were kind of working together, he got sick and he died. So, unfortunately, he never saw the, the final edition. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, I think he would have really been very proud to see it. It sounds like you've really broken down the, the issues into a very minute level where people can pick them up and and understand that small issue without having to be overwhelmed with all the issues. For me, one of the biggest ones, because our medical situation here in Canada is quite good, so we don't really have a lot of those issues. We still have some, some of the paperwork and things like that that have to be done. But um, for me, the big one, as being part of that sandwich generation, every place I found myself felt like the wrong place. Um, If I was at my father's house reminding him to eat and bringing him a meal, then I felt I should be home with my children and my husband. If I was home with my children and my husband, I realized I wasn't getting enough done at my day job, you know. Um, Yeah. mm Mm-hmm. And so there was that push-me-pull-me. That's a common problem um, in that sandwich generation piece. I do look at that uh, in terms of... How do you um, how do you cope with caregiver burnout and stress, which is something I think everyone experiences, and I think that that's what you're describing as well. Mm-hmm. Um, there's there's so many balls that you're juggling at the same time, and the majority of caregivers uh, are women, mm-hmm. and women tend to be nurturing people anyway. And so you may be a parent, you may be a partner, you may be employed, you may be in school. Um, and all, and then you add the caregiver component of all of that, and it's just um, a huge challenge. And in addition, because women are primary care, caregivers, women are infamously bad at taking care of themselves. Oh, and yes. So, oh, yes. I can tell you about... That, that nurturing part of, of us that we want to help mm-hmm. other people, but we're not so attentive on, in terms of taking care of ourselves. Mm-hmm. About two um, months before really my father that. passed away, I mean, he, he battled cancer for a few years. He had six different surgeries, and it was um, very, very difficult for him. Um, the last That's couple months... For you, I imagine, as well. Well, yes, because he was always a very intelligent man, and he mm-hmm. couldn't remember that I'd called him in the morning. He couldn't remember that I'd seen him at lunchtime. He'd say things like, you never come to see me or you never call me. And meanwhile, I was bringing him lunch from my office every day, you know, so that was kind of, yeah. that was yeah. difficult. I mean, I, I wasn't overly hurt by it because I was old enough to know that there was something medically going on. Um, and it turned out it was toxemia because of the cancer in his bladder, you know. It was causing him to forget yeah. things. Um, I think really great that you are able to do that a lot of people are not able to separate that medical piece from the personality piece mm-hmm. and what I mean by that um, for example my mom had breast cancer and, and metastasized to her brain and it she had multiple seizures grand mal seizures and it totally changed her personality she was a loving wife and mother and uh, when it metastasized she became this very angry, agitated, mm-hmm. verbally abusive person, and also she had memory issues as well. And mm-hmm. um, from my dad, he, he couldn't separate that. He, he, you know, and so he couldn't understand that she couldn't control what she was doing. That it was the result mm-hmm. of a medical condition. And I, I think that's a really common problem for a lot of caregivers. You feel like you're doing as much as you can, and and you are part of that sandwich generation, and then. When you don't feel you're getting that acknowledgement or that appreciation, yeah. what happens is, as a caregiver, um, people become uh, frustrated, they become angry, they, mm-hmm. and some of that 
and that emotion they sort of swallow um, or and then it comes out at times that we don't want it in a way we don't want it to come yes. out. And so yes, and we all know these people. Listeners, you know these people. They work with you. They go to church with you. They walk the streets and shop with you. They all have somebody that they're trying to take care of. Um, so be gentle with them. I, I, I've known so many people, and um, I mean, I was really lucky because my my sister did help a lot, but I've known so many people who, with siblings, found themselves to be the only one, and uh, I won't say any names because I'd never do that, but one lady in particular I'm thinking of, um, her siblings put so much pressure on her to do for them, but then would not help her do for her mother. And uh, it just yeah. put all yeah. of the pressure on her, and I just couldn't even imagine that. It was just terrible. And then at the same time, her mother had Alzheimer's and could be abusive verbally, and this was a woman that had been a very loving mother, and so that was really hurtful, and she just had a lot of trouble understanding where that was all coming from, you know? So. Yeah, that's a huge, that's a huge issue, uh, and, and so many times in these situations, it feels like one person takes it all on and it and becomes burdensome for them. And then there's a lot of hurt feelings between siblings and other mm -hmm. family members. Mm -hmm. I was like you, I was incredibly lucky. And, um, I have three siblings and even though two of them aren't local, every, we, we all kind of pitched in together. I was sort of the coach of the team, but, um, and I, I really address that in the book in the chapter about building a support network. Mm -hmm. Sometimes people in all good, good conscience agree to do things and participate, and then for a number of reasons, they they can't. Mm -hmm. they, they, they don't know what they're signing on to or the condition of the person they're taking care of changes, or they get overwhelmed with the other uh, pieces of their life, mm -hmm. or they just decide, I, I don't want to do this. And, and then uh, it... it changes the whole balance of the caregiving team and, and, and then you have to reassess and refigure out. Mm -hmm. And sometimes the person that's being taken care of won't allow anyone but one person to take care of them. And, yeah. and that becomes a challenge too. One of the things I talk about in my book about building the caregiving team is even if you don't have someone that's geographically close, you can sort of identify the skill set of the people that are, are going to be participating in the caregiving team. For mm -hmm. example, my, uh, my sister lives in England, but she she wanted to help, and so she she has financial resources, and, and so she contributed financially to help get some companions for my dad. And then my brother lives in San Francisco, and when my sister and I, who were local, got really burned out, that my father had multiple, multiple hospitalizations, and we were really... Um, sort of at a loss we hadn't had any sleep and he came and he he offered respite care with, and he was with my dad so my sister and I could have a little bit of a break mm -hmm. um, and, and that, that that's just enormously helpful yes. when that happens um, but one of the things that I, I address in the book too is if if you find that there isn't that help available for you, how to go about finding additional help and, mm -hmm. and how to um, how to ensure. The goal, of course, is to give the person that needs the care as much of a quality of life as they possibly can, and there are options about how to make that happen. If you know the right questions to ask and you know the places to go, even if you don't have uh, help as, as a primary caregiver from, mm -hmm. from other family members. And I always remembered, um, because we'd been through, uh, it was um, a sudden thing with my mother. It wasn't uh, like it was with my father. She had uh, had a fall. She was a very tiny little lady, and she had osteoporosis. And she'd had a little fall, and they had done an x-ray. They'd said, no, no, the bone's okay. They sent her home, but she was in terrible pain. And they called around 2 in the morning and got my father and said, bring her in because we do see a fracture. So they, they did a, a surgery on the hip to correct the fracture, fracture um, you know, to support it. And that was fine. She came through that. We came into town. Uh, we were away on a little vacation, so we came into town to be with her. But she had trouble with the, uh, uh, the, um, the medications, I think, and she had a heart attack that night. And oh, wow. Yeah, so it took three months for her to die, but it was because of a sudden event, you know. Um, yeah. and it was, yeah. it was very difficult going through all that, but it did 
prepare us, I think, a little better for when my father was going through it. And it reminded us not to parent your parent, because in their minds, they're still your parent, you know. Right. And uh, not to try right. to... very tricky. Yeah, and my father, having been a military man, he never did uh, like to take authority, but in particular from his children. And so you, you've got to remember that. You've got to remember that he still is who he is, uh, even in his weakened spirit, and let him still be that person and let him still feel some sense of control on his life, you know? Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more about that. Uh, we had a similar sort of experience with my mom and dad. My mom was really young. She was 50 when she first got sick. And she ended up dying when she was fifty-seven. But so we weren't we weren't really prepared. No. We hadn't really talked to her about the, the the life and death issues, and the medical forms weren't in place, and the living will, and all that sort of thing. And then, as I mentioned, she she had the metastases to the brain. So here we are in the midst of a crisis, and we don't really know what her wishes and wants are. And um, my dad wanted me to make the decisions, and so. It was really hard in that crisis situation to know what to do and what to try to do what she wanted us to do and the way she wanted it. And it was a huge lesson for for my father. And so the biggest gift that he gave me as a parent was, um, I call it a roadmap. He put together all this information. So we had, I he had a, a health care proxy. He had a living will. Uh, he had made me his... Um, executor so I knew where everything was I knew about his insurance and so all these tools were there for me and we had talked numerous times about what his wishes were Mm -hmm. and so that allowed him to continue to be my parent I mean he was making choices and I was just reinforcing them and we Mm -hmm. did that all before he got sick so I understood that he was of clear mind and that the, the information he was giving me was accurate and we didn't wait until it was in the middle of a crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's a huge, huge mistake that a lot of people make. They don't talk about these things or look at these things until they're in the midst of a medical crisis. And, mm-hmm. and then it's almost it's almost too late, and it makes the crisis even more overwhelming. Um, so my father giving me all these gifts, and also knowing where they were so I had access to them because Mm -hmm. sometimes people say, I have this information for you, but it's locked in your safety deposit box in the bank. And unfortunately, the person that's taking care of you doesn't have the key to that box. And so um, all the preparations were in place ahead of time. And that's a huge message that I I give the people I work with is to prepare yourself to have that caregiver conversation before it's necessary. Yeah, so yeah. Don't be don't be afraid of it. Your your parents. Chances are your parents want to have it. It's often the children who don't because we don't want to face that inevitability. I mean, it's a difficult one. Um, but in role reversal, you you won a lot of awards for that book. So I've got to think it's pretty well packed with some really good information. And uh, we touched briefly on the taking care of yourself aspect. I mean. About two months before my father died, I was um, diagnosed with double pneumonia, and my doctor said, you've got to just stop. And I said, but I can't. Like, I literally cannot stop. And after my father died and the funeral was over, I went back to the doctor and I said, okay, now I can stop. And he said, well, you know, better late than never, I suppose. And uh, I, I got rid of it fairly quickly once I was able to stop and just, you know, stop everything and yeah. go to bed. That goes back to what we were talking about earlier about your wanting to take care of other people and at the sacrifice of your own health at the time. And I did the same thing. I had a gallbladder condition when my mom was sick. Mm-hmm. And um, I just kept putting it off and putting it off because I wanted to be there to help with her. And and then one day I collapsed. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I went to the hospital, and, and the doctor said to me, you have no choice. This isn't a choice. We need to do surgery immediately. Um, and I wanted to keep putting it off and putting it off, but he you know, he indicated that if I waited any longer, it could be really jeopardize my health and, and mm-hmm. my life, perhaps. And so I, I was forced to do it. And it was really hard at the time. I, I felt so guilty about it. And not only that, my, my mom got angry at me, too. Well, of course, of course, because <laughs> pile on, baby, pile on. <laughs> That's yeah, exactly well, what it's it like, really isn't it? It was really interesting. You know why she got angry at me? 
And, and again, she wasn't thinking clearly at the time. Um, at the time after my surgery, and it was when gallbladder surgery was a much bigger deal than it is now, um, I was laid up for weeks. Um, and so I, de I decided to go to my sister's to, have, to help her to help take care of me because I didn't want to put any additional burden on my parents. And my mom got mad at me because she said, I'm your mother. I should be taking care of you. Yeah, and, yeah. and that comes back to what I was thinking. Yeah. And it goes back to what you were saying about them always being their parents, your parents, and wanting to be your parents. And yeah. uh, if she was really, really angry at me. She never understood why I made yeah. that decision. And now as parents, we can see it because I take so much pride in being the mother of my children. And, um, you know, I, I believe I've done a good job with them. They're great kids. They're very loving. They're very kind. And they're very hardworking. And um, I take great pride in that role. And if the time comes that I'm debilitated and I've got to rely on them, I know I'll be able to rely on them, but I also know I'll still want to feel somewhat independent and somewhat, I'll want to feel strength whether I've got it or not, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Well, you've laid the foundation, and I'm hoping that I have too with my daughter, that you can have a candid conversation and, and mm -hmm. um the, the trick to it all, the thing that I talk about in my book and when I make, I do speeches and presentations and workshops is um, I think a lot of time the conflict between the caregiver and the person take, being taken care of is the person that needs the care doesn't feel they're an active participant in it. Mm -hmm. And so, mm -hmm. I, so what I talk about is caregiving being a collaboration rather than a conflict. Yeah. And, and it's really important to include the person that needs the care as much as possible. And the message you give them is, I'm, I, I want to know what you think. I want to know what you want. I want to provide uh, as much of a quality of life for you as I possibly can. And in order to do that, I need to know what you think and feel about it. Mm -hmm. um, and the other piece of it is to continue to tell them you're, you're doing this out of a sense of love. Mm -hmm. and that you're all a member of the team, and let's see what we can do to, yeah. to keep you safe and as healthy as you possibly can. Yeah. Now, this book, Role Reversal, How to Take Care of Yourself and Your Aging Parents, um, it was a finalist for the Best Book Award in 2016. It was a finalist for Indie Excellent Award in 2016. Living Now Silver Award winner, 2017. Honorable Mention for Reader's Favorite Award, 2017. And uh, Book Excellence Award 2017 and a runner-up for the Florida Book Award Festival 2018. So this is a, a damn good book, people, if you are finding yourself <laughs> in this position. Well, it always feels good when, when people acknowledge your work. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah it's been exactly. a wonderful surprise to get the, yeah. the feedback and um, the accolades that I've gotten so far. Yes. For me, the most important thing is that people are touched by the book and that people find things in there that they can relate to and that they can, they can help, mm -hmm. um, help them be stronger caregivers. Yeah. The other piece of it for me too, when, you know, when you're writing the memoir part, um, I, my book was, uh, rejected by a number of places and, but I felt it was important to keep trying to find a publisher. And one of the reasons people rejected it is they said, nobody really, um, knows your dad or cares about his story. And, what I found is that when people read my book, they're very, very engaged with my dad and his story, and yeah. they find it very moving. It brings so the personal me, element. It helps to um, to bring this to lay people, because we are not medical practitioners, those of us who will get use from your book. And you may have all kinds of medical knowledge and, and um you know, caregiver knowledge, but that's not where your average reader is coming from. We just want to know how to cope. You know, we exactly. Just really... It's uh, the basics that are the toughest part. Yeah, and to, and to be I able to cope, so, we have to it's see. It's so important that people understand that these are universal challenges for everybody, to, that yeah. they're not alone in that, too. That's right. That's right. And uh, finally, with your with your next book, the uh, Riding the Infertility Roller Coaster, um, where can people find your two books? Um, uh, well, they can... They can find uh, Infertility Roller Coaster. They can um, order it from their local bookstores or they can buy it on Amazon. Um, and Roll Reversal you, is uh, also on Amazon. It's on the Barnes & Noble site. But you can go into any local bookstore. I have uh, Ingram, Ingram Services as my distributor. And so any 
any bookstore can order it if it's not already there. It's in a number of bookstores. It's also in a number of libraries, um, literally around the world. That's terrific, because but, Ingram um, does distribute widely, doesn't it? Yeah, oh, it, uh, across the world. Yeah. Um, how did, how did you like working? How did you like working with Germany. Ingram? Just on the side, how I'm did sorry, you how did you like working with Ingram? Um, well, my pub my publisher had uh, had to deal with Ingram. This isn't Ingram. This is Ingram Publishing Services. They're two separate companies. Right. Ingram and Ingram, Ingram Services is the distributor. My publisher um, works with them, and they've been fantastic. They get the books out really quickly. Um, there's been no problem at all with that. It's been a real delight. Yeah. Um, the huge thing is, as an author, to have a, a distributor, have a publisher that has a distributor where when someone requests a book, it goes out very quickly so that the, my readers get it get it really, really quickly. So that's been great. How would you categorize these lucky. books? Would, would you call them uh, self-help books, um, personal guide books? How would you categorize them? You know, they're sort of an interesting hybrid. Um, I, when I think of uh, both role reversal and writing the infertility culture, I think of them both as memoirs and self-help books. Mm -hmm. um, so I, when I ventured the contest, I ventured them under both categories because I think both are relevant. Um, okay. I try to make my books unique, and because I write from personal and professional experience, there's that that blend that makes them uh, unusual. Mm -hmm. Before I write, write a book, when I think about writing a book, I go out and do several months of research to see what's out there. It's silly to write something that's already been written. Mm -hmm. um, and what I do is I, I look and see what's there, and then I think about what can I do that's unique, that's different, that brings new information or a new slant to this topic. And if I feel that I have something to offer that hasn't been said, then that's when I sit down and I, I write a book. And so well, that's, a really that's what good, happened with these books. Yeah, that's a really, really good point, Iris. I, I appreciate you bringing that up. And we're going to call that your advice for writers in this genre because um, somebody else mentioned this to me just in conversation over lunch the other day, that, uh, and it's a completely different genre. She's a musicologist and she's... um looking to do an interview with a, a top performer, a very well-known performer. I'm not going to say because I'm not going to steal her thunder. But um, she did a lot of research into his previous interviews and what had and hadn't been asked and tried to prepare a completely unique approach. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, and, and he appreciated that when she reviewed with him what she wanted to go over and was willing to give her the time, which is terrific. So she's going to fly to London and interview him. And this is really what you're saying, too, to look around and find what's already been done and get to know your genre and then try to approach it from a unique aspect. Yeah, you want to you have a fresh perspective. Mm -hmm. And you want to offer people something that they haven't been exposed to before that mm -hmm. you know is relevant. Um, I'm lucky that my personal experience and professional expertise, I have some knowledge about some of the challenges that people face when they face these medical issues or these life crises. And so that piece of it I feel pretty confident about. But mm -hmm. um, putting it in a form that people can relate to, that they can understand, and that they can uh, extract that information um, to their personal situations. Is yes, access really, and really assimilate into their lives. That's really it, to be able to access the knowledge and to assimilate it into their lives, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's really interesting to me. You know, you never know how people are going to respond to what you write and whether they connect with it or not. But um, one of the most moving moments in my professional life as a writer was um, I received an email from a woman in Sri Lanka who had read my infertility book. And she told me that when she read it, she wept because she said no one in Sri Lanka talk, talked about infertility. She wasn't able to talk with it with anybody and mm -hmm. she also thought she was alone in terms of how she was feeling and what an enormous struggle and crisis it was for her and she said it was so gratifying to find out that what she experienced wasn't 
unique to her, and it helped her feel less alone, and it helped her feel mm-hmm. uh, more able to to combat the challenges she was facing. And that is just and when we touch that one that. reader, that is remarkable for us as writers, whatever we write. Uh, Iris, I really want to thank you for coming on Dead to Rights uh, today, and I really appreciate it. Um, can you stay on the line for a moment, and I'll just talk with you after I turn off the recording? Sure, it was a real, real pleasure speaking with you, Dan. Thank you so much for Thank you. Thank you. My thanks go out to Iris Weichler for joining us today on the pod. You can find Dead to Rights at deadtorights.ca or at our Facebook page. Please subscribe at either iTunes or Google Play so that you don't miss any of these great episodes. Our Twitter handle is at deadtorightspod. We'd love to hear from you at carrickpublishing.com or at our Carrick Publishing Facebook page. You can find me, Donna Carrick, on Twitter at Donna underscore Carrick or at my website, DonnaCarrick.com. My husband and partner in Carrick Publishing Crime is Alec Carrick. You can find him on Twitter at Alex underscore Carrick or, of course, at his website, AlexCarrick.com. Be sure to join us next week when our featured author will be Perry Block, Nouveau Old, Formerly Cute. I hope you'll check out our show notes where we'll have information on how to purchase Joan O'Callaghan's travel book, Colors of Canada, as well as more contact information on how to reach us. Our Dead to Rights theme song is Eyes of Gold, composed and performed by Ted Carrick, who also brought us all original story scoring music. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next week.